Good morning, church. Please turn with you in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13. We'll go back to the two verses we did not read last week, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 11 through 16. In this set of instructions that God gives for the redemption of the firstborn, the firstborn of every life that came into an Israelite's family, firstborn son, firstborn uh, the livestock, and even donkeys. And in it, we, we meet again with God's gracious provision for a way to structure us into gratitude, reminding his people forever of their, of their debt to him, of, their, of the price that it costs to provide their redemption. It's not a sacrament as the Passover or circumcision because uh, it would be replaced with Jesus Christ, the death of God's firstborn for us. But in looking back at these Old Testament ceremonies, ceremonial laws that have all been fulfilled in Jesus, they're still useful to us because they, they provide us new contours for gratefully responding to God's grace, new contours to help us to appreciate the provision of God in Christ for us. We begin reading in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. If you're new with us, we're, we study through this book, book uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 13, we'll begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem the donkey, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come to your sons, uh, when your son comes and asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I shall redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gift of your Son. And now, Lord Jesus, we pray you would give us the gift of the Holy Spirit to make the word clear to us, to make the gospel in the book of Exodus clear to us. May we remember that you so loved us, you gave us your only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus, 
and for his sake and God's people said together, Amen. In March of 2018, Arnaud Bertram was called to the scene, a hostage scene. It was a hostage scene, a hostage takeover in a French supermarket. The brave officer, Arnaud Bertram, in his attempted negotiation with the jihadist terrorist, volunteered his life for one of the hostages. Would you take me and let one of the hostages go? After some time, the terrorists agreed to that, and the hostage lived. Betram died. President Macron, commenting on his sacrifice, said he, he died in service. He has fallen a hero in France today. But Betram's pastor had this to say. It seems to me that only his faith can explain the madness of his sacrifice, which is today the admiration of us all. He understood, as Jesus told us, that there is no greater love than to give one's life for one's friends. He knew that if his life belonged to his wife, Marielle, it also belonged to God, to France, and to his brothers in danger of death. I believe that only a Christian faith animated by charity could ask for this superhuman sacrifice. There are some sacrifices that are, that, are, that are so stupendous, that are so unbelievable, so beyond description, beyond expectation, that it's an offense to ask what was the motive. And it's offensive to think that the motive could be anything other than love. That was the kind of sacrifice this French police officer offered. And everywhere in Scripture where the father is said to have given his son, the explanation is that he has done so for one reason, because he loved. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's only one explanation for why God gave his son, and it is out of love. And everywhere in Scripture, everywhere in the Old Testament leading up to the sacrifice of Jesus, the ultimate explanation for all of the sacrifices is to point toward the great sacrifice, the once-for-all sufficient sacrifice of Christ and its motive of love. And this this Old Testament law, this ceremony is, a, is no exception that this redemption of the firstborn, this act of the redemption of the firstborn was ultimately to remind the people of God over and over again, you are redeemed for one reason and one reason only. God has chosen to set his love on you and to set it on you at a great personal cost. 
There are three very specific doctrines in the, under that general umbrella of God's love and salvation. There are three specific doctrines revealed in this passage. We're only going to get to two of them as proven in the first service. And uh, those are adoption and redemption and covenant succession. Covenant succession we'll get to after the missions conference. But these two doctrines are exposed in this passage. The, the doctrine of God's adoption of us and the doctrine of his redemption of us, both of them accomplished in Christ. Now, you say that's so strange to talk about doctrines in the Old Testament, but you know, we've studied a uh, half a semester of systematic theology already, and we're not even through half of the book of Exodus. We've looked at the doctrines of sin and judgment and the plagues. We've looked at the doctrine of God's calling and the calling of Moses. We've looked at the attributes of God. We've even seen the Trinity of God. We've seen multiple doctrines already, so it shouldn't surprise us that we see specific doctrines alluded to, at least, in this narrative. But all of those doctrines are intended, as every doctrine of Scripture is. They're not intended to to swell our brains and make us proud of ourselves as systematic and reformed theologians, but they are to swell our hearts with gratitude in response to the love of God in Jesus Christ. Think about it, first of all, in regard to adoption. Verses 1 and 2, the Lord says to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, that's not the first time we've seen that language, language of the firstborn. I want you to turn with me back to chapter 4. I know you remember this sermon just like it was yesterday, but go back to Exodus chapter 4 and uh, look at verse 22. And there in the early conversation between Pharaoh and Moses, God told Moses to say this, you shall say to Pharaoh, 422, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn born son. There's only one way that Israel could become God's firstborn son, and that would be through adoption. Now, you know how adoption works in our human world. A, 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 a parents or a parent, for no other reason than love, choose to set their love on a child. And through the legal process, that child becomes theirs. It's given a birth certificate even. It is theirs legally and then grows up with that familial reality. And God teaches us in his word that he makes us his children. But he has to do so by choice. We are not naturally his children. We are naturally sinners. The Israelites were no less so. And the only reason that God made a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians was because he chose to set his love on Israel. We studied that doctrine too, the doctrine of God's divine choice, of his, of his, uh, of his inexplicable choosing to set his love on unworthy people. The reason they were not given the plagues as, as the people of Egypt were is entirely because of his gracious choice. Yes, they were slaves, and God is angry 
at slavery of human beings because they bear his image. But these Israelites proved to be sinners too. They were rebels against God. They, they, they rejected Moses at first, who were even told later that they had their own idols. They were unbelieving. We see their sin in the wilderness and in the desert. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, they rebelled against him. There's no reason in and of themselves, no inherent reason that God would choose to make them his children. Makes it clear elsewhere. It's not because you're more numerous than others. It's not because you're more holy than others. It's purely because I love you. It's the only reason any one of us has chosen to be his child. Receiving his grace, we know that God has set his love on us. And adoption really is the point of the whole Bible. One of my friends, Dave Garner, a systematic theologian, wrote a book called Sons in the Sun on the Doctrine of Adoption. And he said this, Adoption is the singular goal of redemptive history. All redemptive history is focused on this, on God's making not just servants, not just Uh, missionaries, not just human beings, not just anything else. He is intent on making us his children, adoption that changes the state of our hearts, the state of our uh, souls, and the state of our bodies. In fact, the Reformation was so exuberant The reformers, those people who brought the gospel back to the church, were so exuberant over the the idea that God chose to make us, not not just to save us, but make us his family. That the gospel in the Reformation is sometimes called the gospel of adoption. He is intent on making us his firstborn sons. Now, sisters must not feel... Uh, left out of that. God knew the word for daughters in Hebrew and Greek, but very intentionally chose to call all of his children sons. So as to say, especially to women in the ancient world who were passed over in their families for inheritance and uh, not given proper dignity, not regarded with, with dignity as they were due. But to say to them, God says to them, says to you, by calling you his firstborn son, that you are his heir too. There is no birth order in the family of God. There are no secondborn. There are no thirdborn. There are only firstborn children. Because every one of us is his precious child and the recipient of all the inheritance through Jesus Christ. God's adoption of you means that you are precious and treasured in his eyes and that you can never be disappointed by him once he has chosen you, once you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you have become his child, you can never be orphaned. He will never let you down and he will never reject you. He will never be ashamed of you. My family used to tell an embarrassing story about me when I was growing up. 
that illustrates the love of God the Father because it illustrates the love of my father who is my hero. My father was a man's man and he had a tough guy persona. He liked that persona, especially before he was a Christian. He was a tough guy. He was intimidating. He had a little store that he ran and ran a very tight ship. People were knew that they had to they had to follow him. They knew they couldn't push him around. And so he was very proud when his firstborn was a son, was a boy. He was going to be a man. And then his firstborn, me, my first word and my only word for the first two years of my life was mama. (laughs) And I called everything mama. I called my mama, mama. I called the dog, mama. I called the The postman, Mama, I called my dad, Mama. It was okay behind the walls of our home, but one time I got loose from my mom. And I came in the back door of our store, the little store that my dad ran like a tight ship. And I came in the back door, I saw the back of my dad's head and a store full of customers and his intimidated employees. And I yelled, Mama! And my dad's neck started to get red at the back. He was counting money at the register, came down all over his face. And he turned around to me and said, that's my boy. I know it caused him great embarrassment. But I never shamed him, never rejected me. Yes, I brought him embarrassment, brought him disappointment. Have done all my life, as all of us do. But he's never rejected me. And neither will your father. You can imagine God, can't you, scratching his head and saying, why did I ever choose that child? Why did I ever make him my son or daughter? But God never does that. You are his son, his daughter, through his son. He cannot love you anymore because he cannot love his own son. He cannot love Christ anymore. And he can never unlove you because he can never unlove his child. And the redemption of the firstborn was woven into Israel's practice, woven into the creation beginning here in order to make that point that God adopts you and makes you his firstborn. Another proof of his love is his redemption. The firstborn child had to be, and the firstborn animal had to be redeemed if it was going to, if the child was going to live. Now the, 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 the animal that was clean for culinary purpose, for for dietary purposes, that animal had to be sacrificed. The cow or the, or the sheep, Uh, the, the, the donkey, which was an unclean animal for eating, but it was a beast of burden, a valuable commodity to the family. It could either be killed, its neck broken. It wasn't proper to be even offered as a sacrifice, or it could be redeemed for the family's continued use by the sacrifice of a lamb. And the firstborn son could likewise be redeemed 
by the sacrifice of a firstborn lamb. Now, that's right. You've heard me correctly. That the, that the firstborn son and the firstborn donkey had to be redeemed in the same way. You can insert any number of jokes right here. The parallel between firstborn sons and firstborn donkeys. But it's not coincidental that God made the same sacrifice for both. He didn't allow the firstborn son's neck to be broken, only the firstborn donkey. But both had to be redeemed the same way. Because God was saying that every one of us, not just firstborn sons, but firstborn sons in that they stood as a representative for the whole family. The firstborn son, just like every child, was born in sin. And if we continue to go on in sin, the Bible elsewhere says, if we rebel against God's holy ordinances, we are no smarter, no wiser than a mule or the beast of the field. To sin against a holy God is dehumanizing. So God says, every firstborn child representing all of the people in the family must be redeemed by the innocent blood of a lamb. Now that word redeem is chosen carefully because it is to convey not only our need, that that we're unworthy, that we're born sinners, that there's no way that we can save ourselves in our own doing, that there must be a substitute for us. But it also reminds us that that substitute costs God. That that redemption that God accomplishes for us was not only for unworthy people in order for them to become his sons and daughters, but it cost him dearly. You may say, how in the world does that, that convey that in this in this passage, because what did it really cost God after all to redeem the people of Israel from Egypt? It didn't cost him anything but exertion of a little energy, which he had plenty to spare and sending 10 plagues and so forth and turning the mind of Pharaoh. So what did it really cost God? It cost God everything. Because in order to make the distinction between the Israelites as the recipients of his favor and grace in order to make the Israelites his children as opposed to the Egyptians meant that for God to remain true to his just character those sins the sins of the Israelites which were as deadly and as rebellious and as offensive to God as the Egyptians sins in order to be true to himself he had to punish those sins somehow In order to be just, he had to punish those sins. In order to forgive them and remain true to his character, he had to punish those sins in an innocent victim. And a a lamb was not sufficient. It had to be a perfect person because only persons broke the law. It had to be someone in whom there was no sin one who was not born in sin, one who never sinned. It could only be his son. Well, you say, but Jesus wouldn't be born for another 1,500 years or so. How could, how could it cost God in the Old Testament to give up his son for these sinners when he's not born for hundreds and hundreds of years? Well, that's just the way you and I see history. 
We see the future. We see the past. We see present. But in God's mind, everything is present. And the death of his son is constantly present. It's explained to us in the, in the New Testament in Revelation 13. The Lamb of God has been slain from the foundation of the world. There's never been a time in God's mind that the Lamb has not been slain. There's never been a time in God's eternity when he hasn't been losing his son in order to gain us as his children. There's only one way that God could say to the Israelites, you are my firstborn son, I will forgive your sins and call you into my fellowship and spare you of the judgment that you're due. It is by taking your sins and putting them on my son who is dead for you. You can never read about redemption in the Bible and not understand that it involves, that it requires a purchase price. The price of God's son and the price of God's son's blood. To forgive you and me always costs God. It cost him his blood. Many of you, like I, have come to appreciate Brene Brown, the, the academic expert on, on shame and one who's also transparent in sharing her own journey through shame. And even recently, she has openly talked about returning to the church, which she had become cynical about. She says in a, in a video interview, people would want love to be all unicorns and rainbows. But when you send in Jesus, she says, it messes up everything. When you send in Jesus, you say, oh, my goodness, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. Love is a broken hallelujah. Those, those faiths and communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. If something has to die in order for forgiveness to happen and people are deathly afraid to feel grief, then we just won't forgive anybody because we don't want to feel grief. I thought faith would say, I'll take away your pain and discomfort. But what ended up, what love ended up saying through Jesus was, I'll sit with you in it. There is enough blood on the floor in Christianity to promise real love. And it's not only blood, not blood merely required of you in your forgiveness. It's the innocent blood of God shed through his son in order that he might make you his child through adoption and redeem you from your sins. I used to read a, a little book to my Children is an old, old Sunday school book. And the story went something like this, that a little boy saved up his money to buy a kit so that he could build a boat. It was a model boat kit. 
He bought that kit, he put it together, he labored and put it together. It was a treasure to him. He couldn't wait to the day he could go out and sail it in the, in the park near his home. And he had some kind of tether attached to it, but it got loose from the tether in the wind and blew down the stream and blew away from him. And no matter how hard he chased it, he, he couldn't get it. it. It disappeared. Some months later, he and his mom were walking down the street. They went by a secondhand toy shop and they saw his little boat in the window. So he went into the shop owner and he said, "Uh, sir, I've been looking for that boat everywhere. I finally found it. There's that's my boat. I'm ready to take it home now. And the shop owner said, I had to buy that. There's another little boy who found it. He came and sold it to me. You'll have to pay me for it if you want it again. He had to save up his money again. And he bought the boat. And on his way home, he says to the little boat, little boat, you're twice bought and you're twice mine. You're a human being bought originally by your creator. And with Christ as your savior, you're twice bought. You're his child purchased at a great price. Regardless of the story you tell yourself, regardless of the shame that other people put on you, regardless of the rejection that you have experienced or continue to experience, it's not true. Only what God says about you is true. You're twice bought, twice his, and unspeakably loved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we we do believe we are loved, but help our unbelief. Send your spirit to seal the Father's love to us. Send your spirit to draw those who have yet to bow the knee to you and receive your love offered in Christ for their salvation. Would this be the day of their salvation and their adoption and their redemption? In Jesus' name we pray it, all God's people said.